Hey everyone and welcome back to CDYY Blackout, the first CDYY Blackout of 2023. Happy New Year everyone, I'm your host Max Bowen and you know my year is actually starting off pretty well because I get to kick off the 2023 season by talking to someone who's fairly well known in the film and TV industry. He is a two-time Emmy Award winner, a three-time NAACP Image Award winner. He's the co-author of two previously published books and he has a new one coming out in the new year. It is called Not Your Father's America, an adventure raising triplets and a country being changed by greed. Author Court Cassie joins me. Court, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you very much. I appreciate that introduction. Appreciate it. Ah, you're welcome. Having gone through the books, seeing the chapters, this really centers on, though, your three kids. Not just them, though. It's kind of like your three kids, but also what they represent, the world that they're coming into. And it's really all about America and how it's changed. Uh, not only just with like your life and going to your kids, but also from your father's America. So I want to kind of start with that. These three Americas, how are they different in your mind? Well, it's a it's a great question, uh, and it's it is your, your question is really what was kind of the, at the heart of starting the book, doing the book. The book at the end of the day weaves together two narratives. One is a narrative about the struggle to start a family, the surprise of having triplets, and believe me, it's a surprise, and and then you know what it took to raise them. So there's all that in the one narrative and the other narrative is sort of a father's concern and observer uh, of the America that we're bringing the triplets into. And I liken it to being, you know, the family's in a van and we're driving down the road and dad's behind the wheel, mom's riding shotgun, the three babies are in the back, they're newbies, they're babies, they're adolescents, they're, you know, toddlers, they're growing up. And I'm looking out the window periodically, keeping an eye on everything, but looking out the window and going, what the hell is that? You know, what happened? Just What just happened there? So it's that kind of observation of, the, of one of the Americas. So the three Americas are obviously the, the America my father grew up in, very different than the America my brothers and I came up in. Um, and in fact, I was just writing about this today. If it weren't for fertility medicine, which came along in the early 90s, we wouldn't have children. So much before that, we would have either not had children or we would have adopted maybe, but we wouldn't have had our own children. So that's the America that my brothers and I and Barbara get to get to live in in the, you know, the early 90s. We get the benefit of that. And then, as I say, the America our kids are inheriting is yet a different place, being shaped by different forces uh, and different events. Yeah, and greed obviously seems to be the big factor, of course, it's right there in the title. How has greed changed America, though? What I noticed as I observed these changes, sort of tectonic changes, that there was a common thread in every one of them. So early on, for example, the boys are... I don't know, maybe they're six or seven or whatever. I'd have to look back in the book. But Wall Street changes. And how it changes is it goes from being major companies go from being owned and operated by regular folks, wealthy folks, but folks who you know, really had a lot to lose if they didn't do well in the markets. 
And then they, Goldman Sachs is the example. And against the wishes of the heirs to Goldman Sachs, the very people who they bought it from, the guys who bought it said, we're going to take it public. Well, why, why would you do that? Well, you do that because now the shareholders bear as much uh, risk as you do, and or or your your uh, the previous owners did. So you have this tectonic shift in Wall Street, and I thought, well, what's wonder what's underneath that? And started looking at it, and there's a guy famously from Goldman Sachs who says it's greed. We we could then simply make more money. And and pay less attention to our investors, frankly. So, you know, it's like that. Um, we're going along, and we see the the disaster in the Gulf, the you know horrible um, oil spill, and you start to look at it. And there's actually an official study and investigation, and it's. It's greed. The companies didn't want to pay for it checking out and making safe their own equipment. The, the so-called, this is the uh, Deepwater Horizon case, and um, the, the blowout preventer that they had in place was not capable of preventing a blowout. But, and you would think they would, um, you know, fix that. That's kind of their job. But you see, so there's the other piece of this is that regulation begins receding under Ronald Reagan in 1980, takes a big hit. And so you start to reduce regulation, but the temptation for profiteering remains the same. So you get these, these incidents that have uh, greed uh, underneath them. So given all that, you, know, you see these changes in the country, you see greed taking more and more of a hold on things. Does that make you worry as a as a parent? Like, what kind of world am I bringing my kids into? It does. It does. And that and I wanted to share that with my sons because I wanted to share more than our experience of growing up together, which is wonderful and great, and tr- and you know tricky at times and exhausting uh, at times. But I wanted to share more than that. I wanted to share what I thought was going on in the world they're, they're going to be navigating. So it, I, I should mention that my first sort of connection to the greed word was my father was running for mayor of San Diego and he was a sacrificial lamb. He wasn't going to win. He was running, running against a two-time, um, you know, two-time uh, incumbent with a lot of money. Um, but we dived in to help him, and he got about 35% of the vote, which was crazy. But at one point, he was in Balboa Park speaking to a group, and in a mayor's campaign, rent control is always an interesting topic. And so somebody said, what do you, what do you think about rent control? And he said, are, no, the question was, are you in favor of rent control? So if you are, you're sort of on the side of tenants. Voters who are tenants, and if you're, if you are, you're, you've got landlords, uh, uh, you know, lining up against you. And he said, I, and I thought this was brilliant. He just off it, off the cuff, he said, "I'm for greed control." And I thought, well, there you have it, really. You know, 
Yeah, landlords should be able to charge what they need to charge. And and tenants need to pay what they fairly should pay. But gouging is a whole different thing. Profiteering is a whole different thing. Putting profits again uh, up before the welfare people is a whole different thing. So that was um, a big part of it. And that's what I wanted my sons to see, that it's not getting any better. The weird thing about this is that when I put it in the subtitle, a number of family members said, oh, that that seems a little little edgy, you know, a little. And and one of my sons was concerned for a a little bit that, you know, that might scare people off. They may not read the book. And I thought, yeah, you know, a lot of people might not read the book, so I can't really control that. Um, But as as the book came to completion, every time I turned on the news, it seemed like, and read in the LA Times and the Washington Post, there was some story that had greed in it. It, it's it's really kind of the word of the decade, <laughs> you know? So it's not, I think the cases that I point to, all of which are in the window of the, of the, of the, of the memoir. So the memoir is a window from about two, uh, 1992 to 2013. So I don't stray out of that window and deal with, uh, you know, ancient history. And I don't deal with... Uh, I make maybe a reference here or there, but I and I don't go past 2013 roughly. Um, so there's a lot I don't deal with. But what I wanted to point out to the boys was, look, this is this is what's going on, and it's not getting any better. So it, you know, heads up, might want to take this, you know, take this into account and and see what we can do about it. Yeah, you know, I like that metaphor earlier you had about like driving down the road, and, like looking out, saying, "What the hell is that? What's going on?" I think if I were in the driver's seat, I'd be looking around me and thinking, oh, no. It's, yeah. It's like, it's like with a new year, you're not hearing people saying, oh, this would be a great year. You're thinking, well, it can't be any worse than last year. As long <laughs> yeah. as it jumps over that very, very low bar, we're okay. Yeah. We count as we're a win. Good. I want to ask about the the choice to include your family in this book. Because you could have just done like a, a historical analysis of like, okay, America in my dad's time, America in my time, and the current America, and the choice was made to weave your family into it. What do you think that brings to the table? It's a great question, again, uh, because it's the, the, the sort of impetus for the book started with people saying, hey, you should write a book about raising triplets or about triplets or about having triplets. Friends would say it, and it was pretty frequent. And, and my thought was always, yeah, you know, no one really, how many people need that book, you know? And then I, but it was in the back of my mind and I'm a writer and I'm a note taker. And so I kept a journal of sorts and I kept, I kept something I called monologue jokes as if I was one day going to do a Ted talk on trip. I don't know what my thinking was, but I kept, and then I kept notes about funny things that happen, odd things that happen, and interesting things that happen. Uh, and uh, in the world of being a parent, being Barbara's partner and raising these three boys. And so there was that, and I was kind of sitting there. And one day I went through some files we had moved recently, and I found these uh, this file of kind of anecdotes from, from the kids. You know, they're now out of college, but 
But at the point I find it, I go, I got to share this with them. And we sat around uh, and read through this. And we were just howling with laughter at how, you know, some of it was stupid, but a lot of it was precocious and it was funny and, and it was rare, you know? So I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, I, if I wrote a book, I would want it to be entertaining. So this seems like some pretty entertaining stuff, right? Because um, I'm sort of an audience-oriented person, having worked so long in television. Um, so that was part of it. And then um, I wanted them to be included because there, there were a lot of parts to the experience that they couldn't be aware of, that they weren't aware of. I mean, when, um, you know, when your kids are, uh, you know, until they're about five or six or seven, you don't know what's staying with them or landing on them, you know? Um, I remember when they were five, um, we had the 2000 election and, and Bush W was basically in, um, you know, made president by the Supreme Court. When he did not win the election in Florida, and I point out that in the book, there was a whole study. So the boys are five years old. They're going to sleep. Barbara and I are looking at each other and go, what just happened in America, right? So we go to bed, but we don't go to sleep. We're watching Brian Williams or whoever on the news, which is just everywhere. and. Um, Barbara turned to me and said, I think this is the beginning of the end. And I kind of choked and went, well, that's a little bit dramatic, isn't it? And then I thought, maybe not. You know, and in retrospect, it really wasn't too dramatic. So that's another indication of, you know, when you're five years old, that doesn't register with a five-year-old, not with our boys who are so busy doing other things. and. And when they're 25 years old, they've forgotten that. That's, you know, that's ancient history. That's also not on their radar. So that's part of why I wanted to include the boys. I wanted them to experience what we experienced and re-experience kind of what they experienced with us. Yeah. Their lens is so important because like they're seeing all these monumental changes as kids, really. And it's interesting to see, I think kids these days really have a good grasp on what's going on in the world. We kind of dismiss it sometimes, but kids really are on top of things when it comes to what's happening these days. So they were, they were really yeah. privy to, they really grew up in this time when things were majorly changing in a lot of different ways, too. Yes, and, and if their kids, one of our sons has three daughters, and they're, you know, constantly watching... Uh, stuff on TV and on, they've got their phones and one of them is working on an iPad now and, and they know what the internet is and Facebook and all of it. Our guys were coming up as that was beginning to, to take place. Facebook was another thing that I noticed uh, one day, um, you know, we put them to bed. Uh, it's eight o'clock at night. We're thrashed, but I, you know, pick up the paper and try and indulge in a little bit of adult time. And I read about this company called Facebook, which has just gotten an enormous valuation 
I can't remember the year, but it's, you know, the kids are not on Facebook. We're not on Facebook. The world's not on Facebook yet, but Facebook has been created and somebody's investing in it and it's becoming a big thing in the LA Times. And so you notice it and I noticed it. And again, I think the kids would have today, most kids have no, they have no recollection, but they have no appreciation for the genesis of the smartphone and and some of these things. So I wanted to say a little bit more than you know, before there was Google, you know, I, I, you know, trying to give them a little context. Yeah. We, we had this thing called the library. We would look for books on things. Remember that? We had, yeah. we had the card catalog. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, my generation is sort of that straddle generation because we came, when we started off, it was all, you know, books and whatnot. We didn't have computers. Right. And, you know, we were, we sort of grew up with this tech, you know, I remember my, my first phone was this big block it didn't do anything really except make except for making calls i can remember yes. when myspace came along and facebook and yes you know but they're coming into this like your kids their generation is coming into this when it's all just established right right yeah so so that's the reason i think that i wanted to share it with them and then you know as they read it they realize it's their story um but it's also a story that, you know, you don't really know. I mean, they, they'll know their story from my perspective. So there's that. I give, mm. I give you that. Um, and that is what it is. Um, but I think there's a lot there that will be um, and is interesting to them. They know, fundamentally, they know their story is, is kind of interesting. We, uh, we started taking, when they were nine months old, we took, our pictures for our first Christmas, our first holiday card. And we just, you know, it was a struggle. I mean, to take a picture of these three babies was herding cats would have been easier than what we were dealing with. Right. And they were, and and the photographer at the time, who's still a friend and still taking pictures for us years later, he was shooting film. Remember film? Oh Yeah. 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 No, no cell phone cameras in those days. And no digital. So we finished the session and he said, you know, I'm not sure I got anything. And we're thinking, well, you know, it needs to be a picture for our Christmas card. And he says, I don't know, but they're really squiggly and hard to control. So sure enough, he did get a a picture and we used it. And our Christmas cards became a thing. And and what they became was a kind of, the storyline of the kids of these three little kids coming of age. And so you got a yearly update in a, in a photograph taken by this brilliant guy, uh, Curtis Dahl, um, who just somehow he trained us all and he captured everybody really, really, really well in all kinds of different settings. And so people would, would tell us, Well, we got your Christmas card and we're keeping it on the refrigerator all year long until we get the next one. Yeah. And we go, okay. And they, and then they'd say, we've got them all. So it's even to this day, the Christmas card has become kind of a thing, but it's a thing because it's their story more than our story. Mm. Um, It's a thing because you've got to watch these three you know, individuals come, come of age sort of. Yeah. yeah. 
So in sharing your kids and your family's story with the whole world in this book, were there ever parts where you kind of thought, hmm, do I want to put this in there? Do I want to put that in there? Should I maybe edit this a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, Barbara read every draft um, and she corrected some things that I had wrong. Um, I don't know that we ever really cut any, we cut one thing that was about me, um, which I think we was a good thing to cut. Um, don't feel like we sanitized it in particular, in any particular way. I mean, there was a time when Braden wrote on the wall with a crayon and we busted him and he lied about it and, you know, we had to put him in timeout. So I don't know if that's, that's probably not in the book, but it didn't seem that unusual or important. You know, um, I think, the, and the other thing is it's chronological. So it very much falls out across a sort of timeline, you know, the timeline drives it. Um, and I think one of the most difficult sections for me is when they get to high school and they have the bad high school coach. And I know a lot of kids, a lot of young men and women have had bad coaches. And it's one of the, one of the things as a parent that you just wish didn't happen. We knew a very famous uh, baseball coach. He was the coach at Texas baseball, University of Texas. And he said, look, coaches need to remember their teachers fundamentally. And this guy, this guy was uh, a narcissist. He was a bully. Um, anyway, it, it was a very tough, unpleasant time. But I talk about it. And I talk about it in the context of stuff happens. And people get hurt. And you move on, you know, as best you can. Exactly. All yeah. right. But I want to ask about the choice to have kids in in the first place, because reading the book, of course, you have a very lengthy career in film and television. I remember reading your wife had a, a very successful interior design business, too. So what led to having kids and kind of how were you able to incorporate, you know, the professional lives with the personal ones? The So we, like a lot of couples, I guess, um, and maybe from our, our time as young couple, a young couple, we thought to have a family, first of all, we lived in fear of getting somebody pregnant. I, I lived in fear of getting a woman pregnant my whole life, you know, and Barbara probably lived in fear of getting pregnant her whole life. So we get together and we're on birth control. We're practicing birth control. And we figure when you stop doing that, boom, you're going to have kids, you know. So we stopped and guess what? Couldn't get pregnant. And we tried and Barbara took her temperature for two years uh, to see when she was ovulating. We did something called the, the turkey baster method. We did something called the hamster test, swear to God. Um, it, it, she took a Halpinjo cinogram or something to uh, x-ray her. I can't, I can never say that word. How, a pingeogram. I don't know. You'll look it up. But uh, it's a it's an X-ray of the fallopian tubes. Nothing worked, and so because it was available and it hadn't been very long, 
that it was available. We availed ourselves of fertility medicine. So right away, we, we, were, we were being very intentional about having children, about starting a family. And we were working, each of us in our careers, very hard and, and arguably, maybe not at the peak, but we, were, we had been working very successfully for a long time. So like, okay, great. You know, we can take this on. We're capable people. First of all, fertility medicine can just break you. I mean, it's it's the most humbling thing ever. Um, and at one point, we looked at each other and went, this makes no sense. We've run companies. We've had big jobs. We've done well. Why can't we do this? Why isn't, you know, why isn't this working? Um, it was very confronting. And then... So you, we recommit, we go through, we lost a baby girl in just in uh, born too soon. Uh, a couple of other, uh, I mean, there were just these moments where you just get busted by the process you're in. And finally, Barbara gets pregnant and we go to the, to the fertility doctor and he's got a wand, he's moving around on her tummy and he goes, oh, Whoa, looks like you're pregnant. And we're going, yeah. And then he goes across the nut, another um, little blurb and he says, oh, looks like twins. And I'm thinking quietly to myself, beautiful, two, done, let's go. And then he goes over the third one. He says, oh, my goodness, looks like you've got triplets. And I went, no, 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 go back. That you're, you're, go back to that. You you double counted. Go back to the and he said, "All right, I'll show you." And he did. So it is number one. He said, "See number two and number three. And I was ashen. And Barbara, I thought was going to pass out. I mean, it was just. It's first of all, we had just gone through losing a baby girl, one baby girl in a born too soon, and now I know for both of us there was the specter of well, what if this goes wrong. I mean, this is this is a this is a horrifying possibility. Uh, and then there's the moral precipice of: Do you reduce the pregnancy? So all of this stuff comes into play as we are working at our chosen professions, trying to you know move forward, keep making money, keep our eye on on the career ball but also bring along this incredible passion that we have and this, this desire that we have to start a family. So it was, it was tough. It was a real balancing act. I can only imagine, especially with three kids, like one would be enough, but yeah. three. And again, the two. Well, so the, yeah. So the emotional uh, precipice is if you were pregnant, if a woman is pregnant with four, still, I think the do- doctors today would say you need to reduce the pregnancy. With three, at the time, it was kind of a toss-up. And, and we were faced with that. But we, so, but we wanted to be educated about it, and we wanted to make the right choice. So we went to six perinatologists and sought their advice. And only one of them said you should reduce. The other five basically said, no, we can do this. You know, we're, we're getting good at this. We can, we can handle it. It's a, it's a high-tech. Pregnancy, it's high, highly managed, but 
you can do this. We can do this. So it was just horrendous um, kind of quandary we were in. And, and of course, Barbara, this is all in the book, but she's, you know, operating on three times the mother hormones that you would be, a woman would be operating on, right? So she's, she's not just the mom in Schindler's list. She's in like Schindler's list part three, you know, and, and, you know, she's not going to make this choice. She is not going to let go of one of these babies. Um, it's emotional. It's hormonal. And I'm over here looking at financial ruin, basically. Like, I'm, I don't know how we're going to afford this. How, how can we possibly make this work? Um, so there was that. And then we decided to go for it. We, just, we did something called the fear process, and we decided to take responsibility for all of it, for whatever happened in the pregnancy, good and bad, rich and poor, you know, the whole thing. And, and it was a powerful moment because it meant we had to own the whole thing. And that's part of the book also, because I realized when we took that position, we were taking responsibility also for the world we're bringing them into. I mean, they have no say in this. Now they have some say because they're young adults. But, you know, when you bring a baby into the world as we did, they had no say in that matter and for, didn't have any say for 18 years, really. Um, um, so we, took, we had to take responsibility for all of it. As they were growing up, did you find yourself getting kind of worried as things began to change the way that they're going? Or did you say, you know what, it's the world, we can't fix that one, we just do what we can for them? Uh, short answer, yes. <laughs> I became very concerned, um, mostly privately, although I've never hidden my politics and my concerns for my kids much once they got old enough to talk about things. The biggest concern I think I grew into and still have, and it's part of what I'm doing with my work now, is, is global warming. What I realized by the time they went off to college was the planet, the, the, the condition of the planet was going to become inhospitable to humans quite likely in their lifetime, not to mention in the lifetimes of my son Carter's daughters. So that became a very, um, very worrisome thing. I mean, I, I worry about that more in a way that I worry about, you know, isolated incidences of greed and yet what's underneath the resistance to change to a clean energy world is greed. Yeah. So it all, but yeah. Yeah. I think especially because there's that knowledge that, you know, you're not always going to be able to protect them or your, the, or their kids as they kind of come into this world. Like there's going to be a point where you're, you're going to have to step back and say, okay, you guys are basically on your own now. Right. And, um, is a parent that's a it's just are you are you a parent no Do you have children mm -mm. no well it's a thing it's like once you have children it's like you're mortified <laughs> for them and about them and forever apparently it never ends 
Um, but when I think back, you know, in my father's America, they had concerns. There was a world war. Um, and then in the America my brothers and I came up in, there was the threat of nuclear holocaust. And, you know, I remember as kids, we were told to get under our desks if we saw a flash. <laughs> you know, it was like, really? So we, we've all grown up, I think, with something like that, maybe. Um, my concern about climate change, about global warming, is we're, we're acting so slowly uh, to, to mitigate it that what, what's being predicted now is a kind of climate chaos. And, and we're already starting to see bits and pieces of it, you know, with wildfires and violent storms and violent hurricanes. And um, so it's, not, it's no longer a theory. Global warming is a lived experience, right? And I worry that their lives will be, will actually be transformed in some way by, by that. So, yeah. As a parent, you just worry. Oh, sure. But at the same time, do you see hope? Do you see hope that, yes, things can change and they can get better? I do. I'm, I'm basically an optimistic person. I'm a glass half full of bourbon uh, kind of person, you know, um, these days. But, um, yeah, no, I think... We have to be in action. And that's another thing. The, the last chapter in the book um, is about climate change, is, ab is about global warming, and a, and a kind of call to, to the reader, all readers, uh, not just my sons, but all readers, that we need to step up. We need to take action. This is the time is now. The, the, it's, it's too, we're acting, uh, it's past time to act, right? And so, um, but can we can we do it? Yes, we can. I'm doing a documentary currently, um, developing a documentary called 100% um, Possible, The Battle for the World's Energy Future. And it's based on science, a, a, a suite of scientific plans developed out of Stanford University by a guy named Mark Jacobson that lay a, a, a path, a roadway to powering not only all 50 states in America, but 143 countries so far with electricity generated by wind, water, and the sun, with storage for everything. So somebody, these guys at Stanford and, and Berkeley, have thought this through. They've done the thousands and thousands of hours of calculations and modeling um, to, to bring this forward. For the most part, people don't know about it. For the most part, we, you know, we buy an electric car and think, well, this is helping, isn't it? Or we get a hybrid car and we think, well, this is helping, you know, or, we, you know what I mean? Some of us are putting solar panels on housing. All of that is good. But fundamentally, we have to stop burning stuff. That's right yeah. there. And, and like you mentioned earlier, the bits and pieces. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot in the news where, like you said, you know, the wildfires, I mean, like... Or you hear about certain island nations that are having to plan a large-scale evacuation because in 10 years, that piece of land that they and their fathers and their grandfathers and so forth lived on will not exist because it will be underwater. Yes, yes. Which is a terrifying concept from, from any angle. But this leads to my next question. 
do you think this America is like the worst? I mean, compared especially to like the America you grew up in and the America of your father, where does this one rank? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, I think, I think America is fundamentally a resilient place. I think it's a, a place that's, there's lots of innovation and lots of invention in our DNA. And um, I guess, I'm again, I'm optimistic. I think we'll make it. And I think the, the things that I think are great about what are happening, uh, the things that are, that are great are we are slowly and kind of in a difficult way coming to terms with our past regarding racism. It's, it's torturous, but it's happening. Um, I, the only thing I produced in 2020 because of COVID was a, a two people singing the song, We Shall Overcome. And I did it because I wanted them to sing, We Shall Overcome today, not someday, which is the original lyric. And um, I thought, really? We're still going with someday? Let's, let's you know, step it up. And so my point in mentioning that is I think we're making progress. I think, you know, uh, when business leaders, and they are, talk about competition and how unfair competition or the lack of competition is not good for business, not good for a capitalist economy. It's like, okay, that's right. Let's, let's stay on that note. Um, when we, in other words, we have a lot of work to do. Um, so where would I rank it? I would, I would rank if we can put back into place, I would, uh, no, I'll say it this way. Where I would rank the America our children are inheriting is it's the best America we have and the best America we've had. And we have a lot of work to do. We need to put back into place the intelligent regulation that has been in place in many cases and was, has been removed that protects people, that keeps people safe, that protects jobs and protects fortunes. Um, another moment in the book is the Enron collapse. And if you look back at the Enron collapse, 28,000 people lost their jobs overnight because regulators weren't regulating. They just took a pass, right? So um, I think we have a lot, I think there's a lot to be done. And I think we can, this could, this can be the best America of all. All right. What are you hoping people get from this book? Is there an overall message for them? Uh, yes, I think the overall message is the power of love and commitment and perseverance. Um, in other words, when we set out to have a family, the thing that was that got us through it was we wanted the children we had so badly. We just we weren't going to give up on trying to have them. And once we had them, we weren't going to give up on trying to keep them safe. 
And once we kept them safe, we weren't going to give up on having them have a great experience in life. You know what I mean? We just, so there's perseverance. And then I think also, and then, so what that is really is a fundamental kind of love in the family and, and a partnership um, between my, my wife and I, um, I dedicate the book to her as the best mother and partner that any father and husband could ever have. I mean, it's, you can't do triplets alone. <laughs> you can hardly do triplets with two people, right? So it, it's, it was fundamental. But the other thing I would say is a commitment, an ongoing persistent commitment to what you believe in without being attached to the result. And that's a powerful thing. So it's like, the, it's like the marriage vow. You vow that you're going to be there for each other till death you part, sickness and health, all of that. Like, in other words, we don't know what's going to happen or how this will turn out. But, but you're committed. And I think that's, that's a big thing to take away from the book is that the power of love, the power of commitment, power of persistence, and really standing for, for what you believe and what you want. Exactly. All right. Well, Court, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate this. And folks at home, this book is out on January 17th. You go to courtcassidy.com, C-O-R-T, to find all the information. He has many other books, of course, many other projects in the works. Thank you so much for having me. This is Angelina Singer, author of the Upper World series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com. Whether you want to be on the show, suggest a guest, or just ask a question, you can find the show wherever you get your favorite podcast. And don't forget to listen to it every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio and check out all their shows. They got some amazing content. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.